We're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. This is Beyond the Pass. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. We are so excited to be sitting down with David Pollan. David works for Kelly's Cause as a mental health first aid instructor. He began working in hospitality at the age of 18 and since then has undertaken a wide variety of front of house roles in both Belfast and London. In the great industry tradition, David is also a trained actor. He has facilitated workshops in a number of different community spaces, from care homes to young offender centers. Alongside his role at Kelly's Cause, he also works as a project manager, planning and delivering programs which use creativity as a tool in order to improve well-being, create social connection, and affect change. Hi, David. Hello. Um, I just wanted to start by asking how you started out in the industry. Um, so I began in the industry, um, I think I was around the age of 19. I was definitely like at university um, and I got a job behind the bar of a rugby club in Belfast, <laughs> yeah. um, which was like highly disorganized. And I was like terrified for the first probably three months of that job. Were you a rugby fan? No. No, not a rugby <laughs> fan. Didn't didn't know how to play the game. Didn't know the rules. Um, so yeah, are you that... a rugby fan now? No, <laughs> not no. Okay. <laughs> okay, got it. No, no. I mean, you didn't get to see really any of the match. It was kind of like the match would happen. You would kind of set up and things like that, and then there would be half time. You would get absolutely slammed. Then everyone would leave again. You would kind of just be setting up. So you never actually saw any rugby while you were there. I mean, it sounds like you were just interacting with people at the worst possible moments. Yes, whatever. They were kind of like, had 15 minutes to get a pint and go to the toilet. So it was like, yeah, very high a bit of a disaster. Um, when you, as you sort of started moving through, or even in that first job, what was sort of your favorite thing about it? Like, why did you stay in the industry? And what was your least favorite thing about it? I think, I think favorite thing about it was um like the people and the conversations that you would have with them too um and i think like a sports club bar is like quite nice i've worked in quite a few bars and i think a sports club bar is like a lot of other bars where there is a sense of community around it um and you'll have like the older people that have maybe been coming to that bar for like decades um then you'll have like younger people who maybe just have just joined the club and things like that so there is like a sense of community you kind of, as a bartender, always hear different stories. So I think that was probably my favorite thing. My least favorite thing was probably the sort of like 15, 20 minutes of halftime <laughs> <laughs> because it was just kind of chaos for sort of 20 minutes, but at least it was short. Yeah. <laughs> um, what sort of before you started out in hospitality when you were younger, what was your understanding of mental health? And I guess the bigger part of that question is like, what was your understanding when you sort of started working in these environments that were like quite hectic and challenging? And then how did you sort of navigate your own mental health in those environments? And the answer might be, I didn't, which would definitely be mine. <laughs> yeah, it probably is something along the lines of I didn't. Um, I think that my understanding of mental health around that time was very much um, in response to my brother's illness. My brother um, experienced psychosis around whenever I was about 
I think I would have been about 16 whenever he first um, experienced symptoms. And so I think at around the age of 19, he would have just received his diagnosis of schizophrenia. So my kind of understanding of mental health was very much um, through mental ill health. I didn't really have an understanding that mental health was this thing that I had as well. And actually, it could be this positive um, aspect of my life. I very much had a negative kind of avoiding mm. getting ill lens, not actually mm. thinking about being healthy. So I think that was like that dictated the way that I thought about mental health for throughout those years. Um, and in relation to hospitality, I suppose, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really look after my mental health. I think I just tried to do things that would avoid me becoming unwell, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think it's so interesting what you bring up. And like, I also, I have a dad who's got really intense bipolar. And I think one of the things that really affected me thinking about mental health was that my understanding of what poor mental health looked like was so extreme. It was like psychotic episodes. It was spending all your money. It was being hospitalized. It was so extreme. So it took me like, I mean, how old am I now? Like, you know, 20 years or something to understand that like I could also be having poor mental health. But because my benchmark was so high and I was like, that's what ill mental health looks like. That's what it means to be mentally ill. Whatever I was experiencing, any anxiety or depression or when I was in environments that weren't healthy for me, I didn't clock them at all. Mm, yeah because I was like this is child's play you know yes there's that comparison thing isn't there where it's like oh mm. I can't be not well because I've seen what what illness really looks like and I'm definitely mm -hmm. not well. I often felt like um I suppose I still do to a certain extent but I often felt like I would be very watchful of myself um, and of my mental health and now so it's in a much more healthy way but I think back then it was much more I was motivated by fear you know fear of becoming ill in the same way that um, my brother had so yeah it is it's interesting it definitely like can can change your perspective um, mm -hmm. on what mental health means for you and it's interesting that that experience of being introduced to it in quite a serious way at quite a young age in a way it creates bigger barriers than if you hadn't had that sort of intimacy with it and like, I mean, every time, even now, when I like frantically clean my apartment, which is arguably quite good, I always think there's this little voice in the back of my mind that is like, is this the mania? Has it arrived? Am I following in those footsteps? And I mean, now, I mean, similar to you, it's much less than it was when I was younger, just because my understanding is so much better. But it's interesting that it creates this hypervigilance. Mm but that that doesn't translate necessarily to really taking care of yourself or understanding really how mental health works. And like that idea that you brought up where it's like, we all have mental health, we all have it. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and it moves on this continuum. Like I didn't have that information or that in my consciousness until I sort of worked, started working in the mental health space and how absurd. Yeah. Like that, that, that it should, one would think that the great sacrifice for being exposed to that sort of trauma in your family is that it makes you better equipped to like sort yourself out. And I don't think it, in my experience, it doesn't necessarily. Definitely not in the short term. I think like, and those like you're exactly like you're describing, it was like very much an additional pressure. I was placing on myself this kind of watchfulness and this um, intense like worry and anxiety at times around becoming unwell. But I think now like you're talking about there is this much more like 
it's a much more healthy process where I'm like more generally thinking about keeping myself well, not because I'm worried about slipping into um, a psychotic illness much more so to just to just be well because that's yeah. what we should all be trying to be mm-hmm. I think it's also in I don't know if you've had this also but I think it's interesting how the way it's informed the lens with which I view my own experiences has been very helpful so in terms of like stigma and I would be like I don't stigmatize against that but when I think about okay well what, what are my emotional reactions or like how do I think about these behaviors that I experienced in my family it's I realized that like, oh, I really was complete, like, had I had a parent that was physically ill, like with cancer or something, heaven forbid, my attitude towards the entire experience would be so different. The way that I talked about it would be so different. Talking about it at all would be so different. And I don't think until I sort of, yeah, sort of being in a professional mental health space, did I actually start to interrogate my own reactions to so much of that and I was like oh the very traps we talk about in training about falling into being like you know be careful about this and think about it like this and I was like oh I've, I've never done that before which is weird yeah but I think I agree it's it's hard though I think it is a process um and like I've definitely been guilty of falling into those traps and like whenever my brother first became ill, you know, around that age of 19, I would never have said my brother has mental illness, let alone say the diagnosis that he had. Um, and But actually, you know, only through openly talking about the diagnosis and using the term schizophrenia, have I actually had proper conversations with people about it. Like, it's actually quite common that people have a family member that, you know, has this kind of um, diagnosis. Do you feel like that experience is what sort of drew you to thinking about mental health as part of your professional life? Yes, but I think it took like several years for me. You know, there's that saying of it takes like 10 years for you to like fully process something that was very, very difficult. I don't want to say traumatic because I don't believe it was traumatic for me, but Mm -hmm. certainly a very difficult experience. Um, Mm -hmm. But they said it takes you 10 years to process that. And it has been about sort of 12, 14 years. And I started working in mental health about the 10-year mark. So I think it did take me some time. Not that that was like a conscious thing. It just happens that that's how the timing's kind of lined up. But yeah, I think it absolutely has drawn me to work within mental health and to just like want to understand people um, regardless of how they're behaving or what they're saying. Just want to dig a little deeper. And when you were younger and you were training as an actor, did you have plans for the Olivier Awards that you shelved and sort of ended up in community development? Or was it always sort of your plan to use your arts background to do community development and work within groups of people? I, I, it was so, I, I mean, I'm a terrible person for like wanting to do like everything. So I kind of like at different points, I would have had like, like the idea of possibly running a restaurant was like something that I kind of was like, well, I maybe want to go down that path. I think we've all had that fantasy. Yeah. And then, and then you sort of think For more sure. about it and you're like, Oh God, that would be so challenging and difficult. I'm not sure whether I'm actually cut out for that, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so I like running a restaurant was an aspiration. Definitely like being a professional actor and um, for like stage and screen was one. And then, working in community spaces again, you know, cause I did a lot of that work when I was training. 
um, and found it incredibly fulfilling. So it was kind of also another strand. I sort of thought as a way of being all three, but mm-hmm. need <laughs> like double the amount of time that you have in a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a sense like I know that you've been doing this particular work and focusing on hospitality with us for only a little while, but that you were before already sort of working in that space. At what point did it sort of occur to you to take the community work you do and the work you do around mental health into hospitality venues specifically? Oh, um, I was, it was just before the pandemic. It would have been around December, 2019. And I was working full time in a bar um, in East London. Um, And I find that there was lots of creative people working in the bar, maybe not people that were creative professionally, but certainly, you know, just, just creative by their nature and the way that they went about their kind of their work. Um, And there was also like a lot of, people coming into the bar that um, wanted some kind of listening service or some kind of support. Um, And there was then people on the other side of the bar who were coming to work and they couldn't really be at work or, you know, they were just dealing with the pressures of that job, maybe in more unhealthy ways. And, you know, I definitely fell into that camp too at different moments. Um, And I sort of have always thought creativity is really powerful for kind of bringing people together um creating conversations allowing people to kind of connect without pressure so i thought like why not try to bring some kind of creative thing here and, and maybe address these mental health issues that keep coming up so we created the compass project where we train bartenders in mental health first aid with kelly's cause um, and then we ran creative workshops in their workplaces to try to kind of share the learning of the course with the other staff members I think you bring up something so interesting that we don't talk about a lot, that particularly in pubs, the amount of emotional labor you do for strangers is quite intense. And the information that you receive and sort of the unloading that you take on, what is the word I'm looking for? Disclosure, the amount of disclosures that you take. And when we think about so often in the pubs that I'm in, it's often people that are quite young, maybe students this idea that those people are there to pull pints and they end up receiving information about people's lives that can be really intense. And not only are they not trained with the skills to help those people, obviously, nor is it their job, but how do they deal with that on an emotional level or take care of themselves? And there's absolutely no acknowledgement of that. Like when I worked in a bar, nobody was like, okay, so here are the hours here's like the role, here's the dumb shirt you have to wear. Um, And here are some skills you can use to navigate difficult conversations when somebody opens up to you about the death of their parents or whatever. And that feels like such an intense oversight. And then we wonder why so often people in pubs and bars are perhaps like struggling or experiencing substance misuse or you know, there's all kinds of hedonistic sort of debauchery that happens in those spaces. And I think we often attribute that to be like, well, people that want to work in pubs or bars, they like to party and it's like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, but maybe they're also managing this really intense emotional labor that comes with the job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're exactly right where it's like, you know, there's a lot of like self-soothing or self-regulation through like alcohol, which is just in abundance in a bar. Um, and that's on both sides, you know, that's that's the people behind the bar doing it and the people in front of the bar. 
I think as well, the difficulty is with some of the conversations that you would have is that people might enter into a bar, strike up a conversation with the person behind the bar and whatever it is in that individual that triggers then a, a thought or reaction in the person who's, you know, um, the, in the customer, then that conversation might come from that. So I often find like lots of people would obviously hear my accent and talk to me about Belfast, which sometimes was lovely conversations, sometimes was, you know, fucked up. Yeah, difficult conversations yeah. with ex-soldiers yeah. who were stationed there mm. during the Troubles or, you know, people who were ex-paramilitary that couldn't go back to Northern Ireland and, you know, were living the rest of their life in London without any family around them, you know, different things like that. So, and, you know, I grew, I grew up in my life was relatively unaffected by the troubles, but if it had been, that would have been a very difficult conversation for me to navigate. Um, and often maybe might've made me feel quite dysregulated. So then you kind of turn to alcohol to feel like you're regulating yourself in some way. I mean, even though you didn't, I literally, I'm gonna, I'm probably going to cut this out because I'm probably going to say things that are not historically accurate at all. But I was just reading this book about this Irish family. It's a nonfiction, but they were basically talking about the fact that like, like the hangover from the troubles, talking about the fact that like, although these kids didn't grow up in like direct violence and that was over and they were called like, what was it like the peace generation? Peace babies. Yeah. Yeah. The peace babies. But the it was actually more dangerous because there was this insidious violence that continued and economic disparity that was like absolutely insane. And the, the people parenting them and teaching them and all of that were like totally like complex PTSD all over the place. And so it didn't exist in a silo. And so I think, yeah, it's so interesting what you say that you're like, well, I wasn't directly affected by that. So I could handle it receiving all that information, but I'm sure that there was a level of, sort of understanding your own history in a very different way and in the great Irish tradition of sort of avoiding anything emotional it must have been a very interesting navigation to have to recontextualize what you understood about your experience in some ways yes and and I think you're 100 percent right there is obviously you know like even the name of of this conflict called the troubles you know it's like a very euphemistic <laughs> yeah you're right and I think being like being from Northern Ireland coming to England like there's a great play, um, Cypress Avenue by David Ireland. And uh, I can't remember what he says in it, but it's basically something along the lines of you're too British for Ireland, but too Irish for Britain, you know, and it's like mm. identity shift mm -hmm. depending on geographically where you are. So I think that that was like a thing that was going on at that time too. Uh, when you're having then these conversations about, you know, the troubles in this very difficult history. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting too, like, that depending on who's the person receiving the psychological safety that they then lose in that interaction, the results of that can be quite scary. Even when you think about then who are they going to? So if they go to a coworker and they're like, I just had this really difficult conversation. I need to take a smoke break, whatever. But even if they're going to a manager or the owner of a pub, like I think something that we see in hospitality is that like in most businesses that I've worked in, certainly, it doesn't matter how far up the ladder you go, nobody is equipped to responsibly deal with that. Nobody. And to get all the way through the hierarchy and it's like, oh, we all, no one knows what the fuck to do is, is bad. <laughs> like, Yeah, and I think that that's, I think that's what the training is good at is that it allows you to think more about setting boundaries during difficult conversations and like 
leaving a conversation afterwards you know we talk about self-care within it and how important it is to like try to find some time to decompress either directly after the conversation or later on so i think that that's a really useful thing to think about because it means that you might not just think oh, well i'm just going to have a, a pint <clears throat> after service i think okay i'm gonna actually walk home instead of get the bus and try to clear my head instead it's like these other maybe more healthy routes that you can opportunities Mm -hmm. are there things that you that hadn't occurred to you or hadn't come up in your personal experiences or like experiences that you never contextualized in a certain way and now that you're in this point of facilitation and you're hearing other people and what they're going through and the the problems they might be having are you like wow this is a part of the industry it didn't even occur to me was going on when I was actually in the role and dealing with customers every day and sort of in the thick of it yeah I think overall it just is um it's it's just like I just always reflect on how challenging the job can be um and I suppose that's something that like I really hope that comes across in the training is that like here is here is the evidence-based approach but obviously it might not be possible to do this 100% of the time because you can only do the best within the conditions that you're in and I think um, often hospitality businesses just you know they're maybe not set up to be able to do your best as a mental health first aider but you know it is only your best that you can do i think you bring up an excellent point because i think when you're in the thick of it and you're working all the time you're like yeah this is hard but you, it's such survival mode and it's such like a uh it really affects the pace of your life and I think it's definitely something that I noticed where I talk to people and I'm like, oh, right. We're saying like, take 10 minutes and go for a walk and have like a chat. And I'm like, you don't have fucking 10 minutes. There are so many people that do not have 10 minutes. And if they take that 10 minutes, then they're pushing the domino and there's going to be all of these repercussions. So I think, and it it is, when you're in it, of course, you're like, this is very hard and we don't have a lot of time. But I think when you talk to people in all kinds of different environments, in hotels, pubs, restaurants, chains, whatever, in corporate offices, that lack of time and time being this like really precious resource that hospitality as an industry just doesn't have. I always thought it was sort of like a me problem when I was when I was managing restaurants, where I was like, I don't have fucking time to do this. Like, this is crazy. Someone called in sick. Like, there's no time. That was sort it felt very personal. And I think that zooming out, I'm like, no, no, this is like systemic. There aren't hours to dedicate to staff welfare. And when the skills that we're teaching or the only skills that are available to us sort of outside sort of training professionally all require time, what do we do? Yeah, and I that's exactly it. It is it's about um understanding that it is a systemic. A challenge it's not something that's unique to you and taking that pressure then off yourself that it's like there is only so much I can do with a very finite amount of time um, every day and I always say like with the course my job isn't to say like how it fits directly into people's working context because it's so egotistical of me to think that I understand the ins and outs of every single person you know that I train but I always try and encourage people to say, like, take what you can, you know, and make it work for you. Like, ultimately, it has to work for you. Um, so, like, take it, morph it so it fits into your context. You know, don't don't try to kind of force things to fit that just won't fit for you because that will just cause more problems. Mm-hmm. 
What do you find are the biggest challenges sort of working in this space? Um, I think generally working with a mental health, um, I think that the biggest challenge is looking after your own well-being, um, especially with my other work um, where I manage a project for people who have longer-term mental health issues. So they come to weekly creative workshops. We would have some people attending twice a week, some people attending maybe three times a week would be the most that people would attend. But, you know, you do get to know people over time. You get to kind of hear snippets of people's stories. Of course, we never ask anyone to, you know, explain or justify anything to us. But you just over time hear things um, and situations pop up too because people aren't living um, in the best conditions. And Yeah, quite vulnerable. Yeah, they're very vulnerable people. Um, and sometimes, yeah, just just challenges in looking after yourself um making sure that you know you're kind of taking care of your own well-being that you're able to be patient and understanding and empathetic because i think it is a kind of resource that can get run down over time if mm. you're not looking after yourself and yeah it's a lot of a lot of listening to people which i love um but i think that you need to be feeling quite comfortable to really listen to someone um, and maybe hear something that is going to challenge you or make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. How do you do that for yourself? Like, how do you sort of keep yourself safe? How do you keep that, that resource renewed? I, I, this is something I've been learning so much over the last year. Um, and I think, like boundaries are so important and it's not something because I came working straight full time in hospitality into then mental health and with that hospitality, <laughs> there isn't, you know, there's very problems with boundaries, you know, um, <laughs> your work phone, text coming on your desk. Yeah, of course, and of if course. the work is there, I will do it. So whenever I was working in hospitality, I was working a lot of my days off or working additional hours and, um, because if I feel like there's something I can complete and get done, I will just go for it. So like learning to pull back on that. And like, sometimes it's okay if there's a lot of work sitting there and you're just closing the laptop at six o'clock in the evening. And um, I think I've been finding like small things to look after myself. Um, like if I have a difficult day in work, I'll take a different route home. So I have to kind of concentrate on the journey more or I will. Oh, that's such a smart thing to do. Yeah, it's been a game changer. Just really grounding you in what's like grounding you in the environment, making your mind like trained to something else. Yes, because for me, um, listening to a podcast or reading a book isn't going to cut it. I will still might, I will just persist, you know, and still constantly turn that thing over. And I still do, you know, whenever I'm trying to get this other way home, but it's much less. Um, and then like phone calls with family um, speaking with my partner, uh, sometimes speaking with my partner, not about work, kind of drawing a line, yeah. <laughs> having conversations about other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Looking as well is my thing that I would do to kind of really like occupy my mind and hands and helps me then like really decompress after a day. And I don't know what it is. Maybe you have thoughts on this, but why so many boundary, bound, boundaryless people end up working in hospitality? And I suppose if you were truly boundaried, you wouldn't be that successful because it sort of requires an anarchy <laughs> that we all seem to be attracted to. But I think it's, 
it's interesting that you worked in hospitality for how up to many years until you sort of transitioned into mental health work full time. And then it's only now that you're in this space that you're like, I have, I'm practicing all this stuff in the last year. I've sort of developed all these tricks and tools. And it's interesting that that sort of work was very absent in the time where you were just full time in restaurants and bars and that like, what is that? Why, why is that? <laughs> well, you know, for me, um, I was very much focused on other people. So even whenever I was deeply interested in mental health, um, whenever I was working full time in the bar and I eventually um, was managing the bar for a year um, and then moved into working um, for Adelangi. But at that time, I was so focused on other people and working in mental health then that was the time whenever I kind of the penny dropped about me, you know, looking after myself so I can be there properly for other people. So I think up until that point, it had been about everybody else. I mean, it's a service job, so you just get focused on other people. And um, so, yeah, turning it around and thinking more about myself over the last year has been like quite a big learning curve. I also think it's massively, you sort of highlight such an important issue where when we are sort of trained to put ourselves back so whether that's for your coworkers or for a customer and because like you said it's so service focused that that sort of taking care of ourselves those little things we can do to just like calm down and divorce ourselves from the day etc are actually things that are very accessible so depending on your work environment or what kind of restaurant you're in you might not have time to do X, Y, Z, Z with the people that you work with. There might be nothing you can do about the sort of pressure cooker of the environment. Like there's often so much that's out of your control, but taking care of yourself and implementing ways to do that and to replenish all of your resources, that's something that we actually can do and you don't need a lot of time, right? It's like you're walking home and you do something different and that we are not, or the industry I would say as a whole doesn't practice that or doesn't focus on that. And because there's so little that's out of your control, the fact that we don't focus on the skills to help ourselves, which is the only thing we can do so often in those spaces. Yeah, and I think um, uh, whenever you whenever you feel unwell, um, and not necessarily you know where you're experiencing an illness, but just whenever you're not feeling well, um, you can feel like so disempowered during that time and, and certainly if you if you are diagnosed with an illness and enter into the mental health care system that's a very disempowering process for you and so I think it's like so important that we empower people when they're feeling well that actually they can affect small changes in their life um, really small you know like like taking a different route home or just like um journaling whatever it might be just like small little changes that you can make within your life um, that don't have to be drastic life-changing things but just slowly over time they might change it it's something that i've started to think about more what you're showing up and doing every day is actually the very thing that distracts you from everything else like if i substitute say booze the way you use booze to self-regulate i can speak for myself the way i would use booze to self-regulate i realized that i was also doing that with my job so like the job was making me burnt out and stressed and I wasn't taking care of myself and I would feel shitty and I'd leave at 11 and I'd come back at 10 a.m. the next day and all of a sudden I was back in the job and it distracted me from how I was feeling. So it's like the very thing that is causing the issue is also the thing that is making me feel better. 
And even though it's hard and it like eats up your life, it was also so satisfying and it was so rewarding and I felt successful at it. And so it's like a snake sort of eating its own tail where the cause is also the the solution in some senses. And I think particularly with hospitality because of the shift work and because of, I mean, just the hours in general, that's something that we're not talking about a lot is the way that we kind of use the hectic environment to self-regulate in some ways. Yeah, that is so, so true. And I think um, I've noticed that even now whenever, I mean, I, I definitely identify within, whenever I was working within hospitality of like, maybe, you know, things aren't going that well personally or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, I might feel like I go into work and I'm like really capable, like I'm able to kind of get stuff done and then, you know, go maybe stuff going on that you can't just like complete or tick a box for. Yeah. and like with my emails like I find that sometimes with my emails is that like I love like sorting out my emails because I'm just like completing things ticking them off getting that dopamine hit um so yeah it's it can be addictive definitely yeah and it's funny when you transition out like what you find the substitutes to be and it felt like when I first left sort of like customer facing roles in hospitality I was like I felt like I was fucking up because like the day was ending and I was like what did I I got some stuff done on my checklist, but like, I'm not exhausted. There's no finality. I'm not like wiping down a counter and locking a door. Like there was no ritual around sort of how productive I'd been. There was no feedback being like, oh, thank you so much. We had a great time. Like all of these little things were gone. And so for the first like six months, I was like, am I, am I fucking up? Like, am I being lazy? Am I not doing the work? Because it just, it didn't totally empty me and it didn't exhaust me. And so I could not receive it as being a job well done. Like my, all of my sensory receptors for that were so like damaged. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm the exact same. Um, you know, my partner always jokes with me, like, you know, my first kind of work was as an actor where people clap you at the end, if you do a good job, and then you work in restaurants where people thank you loads. And I suppose, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit like, am I doing this with the mental health training? Whenever people like thank me at the end, you know, and you kind of feel like you've maybe made a bit of an impact. I'm like, oh, I suppose I'm still looking for that same thing. It's just maybe been redirected or reduced a little bit over time. But yeah, I think hospitality, it's like, it's immediate, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm, you, know mm -hmm. kind of, you know exactly how a service is going, how the team are working together. And you know how the kind of atmosphere is. It's kind of like, in the moment like acting was for me too so it, it's it's obvious when it's going well and it can be amazing like whenever it just clicks into place it, it's just fantastic but obviously equally when it's kind of going when it goes off the rails like it can be can be horrendous but it's also interesting because I think whether it goes horrendous and obviously when it's going well it's like the sexiest feeling in the world but even when it's falling apart you always get to the end of it and then you have the gratification of having survived something. So it's like in both instances, you're left with that satisfaction. It's a curious thing to, to chase, but I definitely need it. Like I'm a massive approval junkie, which I think was only made worse by working in restaurants because I got so used to it. And like one time, this is quite embarrassing and I probably won't include it. But one time I was working, I was just waitressing before I left a restaurant and... 
I had this table. I really liked them. They were like, I forget why. I think they were just out for dinner, whatever. She wrote a little note on the back of the receipt. And she was like, my boyfriend always teases me about how seriously I take customer service. But like, it's like an ongoing joke between us. But you absolutely were brilliant. Like I'm over the moon. I have that piece of paper. I kept it. (laughs) That's class. I was like, I've done it. I've succeeded. Like, but there's something about like the how brilliant that feels and I could be a brain surgeon but if someone didn't come up to me after and was like you did so good it would mean nothing to me I wouldn't be satisfied at all (laughs) but like I think that's I think it's true of so many jobs isn't it you know there is an element of that to different jobs and I think like people do you know we we respond to praise and so yeah but I I agree I mean I'm, I'm definitely it's definitely like a people pleasing tendency that I would have, you know, that I'm kind of like trying to be more watchful of. I think me too. (laughs) I think it's also, it's an interesting thing. Like when you work sort of in this weird Venn diagram of mental health advocacy and hospitality is that I start to see how dysfunctional that attitude is. So like, I can joke that like, you know, my satisfaction from that is like so enormous. And when I do it, when I know I'm smashing it, it feels so good, but it also made me really susceptible to exploitation. Yes. So there wasn't, you know, I'm not saying no to anything and that's my own personal experience, but when I talk to people from all different corners of the industry and I'm like, this very tendency is what sort of keeps us in environments that might actually be extremely detrimental to us in the long run. Mm -hmm. And so I think we see the dark side of that tendency. Do you feel like that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I think that it leads you to exploitation and sometimes actually that's you almost exploiting yourself where no one's asking you to do it, but, you're just doing it and certainly that that was that was me I would have done that um and I think also it um it can prevent you from speaking up too when you feel like something's not right because you maybe don't want to uh what's the saying is it like rock the apple cart is that the saying <laughs> it's rock the boat <laughs> <laughs> what's the apple cart is there an apple cart? I fuck no David <laughs> I don't know <laughs> okay well you don't, yeah you don't want to rock the boat um so you don't speak up about things as well when you feel like they're maybe not right too. So I think that's how it can kind of be a bit more insidious. Do you think, like you obviously talk with people and train people from all across the industry. Are there, what would have to happen to sort of change that environment, to make people feel more comfortable addressing things that are uncomfortable, to you know, empower people to set better boundaries? Like, what do you see as sort of the the solutions? If you could magically implement solutions in like every hospitality business, what would be like the few things that you would do today? I think, I think it like, it all comes down to managers. I think that like managers are so, so important because they kind of set the tone, the standard, you know, the working environment, the atmosphere, how people relate to each other. They dictate what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, they resolve conflicts, they um, develop people, nurture them. Like it all just comes down to the managers because we can't really change the model, I suppose, that we have, which is, you know, very like tight margins, have to make profit, you know, have to maybe be open 24-7 or have ridiculously high standards. You know, all these things are, are so big to change. But I think that if, like, 
we have good managers working within these systems that can care and look out for and support and develop people. And I think that that is where we'll start to see maybe like larger changes across the industry. I think that maybe now people that are kind of at the very top are understanding that if they have good managers, you know, their teams will be happier, more fulfilled, will stay in their roles longer. If they become Mm -hmm. within mental health, you know, I'm thinking about it through that kind of lens. If they begin to become unwell, good managers can um, maybe enable that person to become well again um, in some way, or they can also allow that person to stay in work during an illness possibly where they may not have been able to stay in work under poor management, may have dropped out of work and may then have, you know, faced unemployment possibly. So I think manager or people kind of at the top are maybe cottoning onto that more, realizing that more. And yeah, it takes time. And there's a level of desperation now that I think actually works in, in the favor of employee well-being, where I think often for such a long time, it was seen as this, this this bottomless well of people that would come and you didn't have to improve conditions because if somebody didn't want to stay, you could always find somebody to replace them. And there was this attitude of disposability that unless an operator really had it in their heart to just do it for the sake of doing the right thing, you, you didn't have to. And I think now the obviously that's changed so much and people are desperate to retain the staff they have. And so they're focusing on well-being. But I think that it means the industry is so, so far behind other industries because that sort of, that reckoning has only just started happening. And we're just starting to understand what role mental health support can play in creating a better environment to help with retention, to help with profits ultimately. Um, But it does feel like a bit of a, like a baby Mm, yeah it's like the initial first steps i think i think that's 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 very true that um that it is through scarcity you know that now actually employees have become really valued team members have become valued at all levels now um, so i suppose that is a positive thing and i hope that then continues um and staffing does ease but then we keep that ethos of really valuing the people that are working mm-hmm. in the business mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's about if the people you know, it's all about people, hospitality. It's all about people coming in, people being received, relating to each other, eating great food, having an experience um, and connecting with each other. I'm really curious before we go about sort of the relationship that creativity has played in the work you do in the mental health space and how you feel like that sort of informed it and how perhaps you sort of, in the same way you pull on your hospitality experience to inform the work you do as a trainer, how you sort of pull on that creativity to do the same thing. Yeah, I I mean, so much. I think, like, um, everything that I've done, like, there's kind of shades of it all in the work that I do currently. Um, <clears throat> like, working as mental health first aid instructor, you know, I try to use creativity throughout the course, just simply, like, playing games, giving people a break, and helping them kind of refresh themselves to be re-engaged. Um, and I do really try to encourage people to think about how powerful creativity is for our mental health. I think the the issue is really sits, um, I mean, it comes from a lot of places. I think we value great artists maybe too much. We don't value kind of people that are just learning as much. Um, And also then our school system grades art, (laughs) which (laughs) just is never, you know, it kind of just sets people up and thinking about it in, in a very kind of, and dysfunctional way 
but I do try to really encourage people to think about what creativity can offer people. And, you know, with, with the project that I deliver, we see people coming in who have really complex mental health diagnoses um, and difficult situations that they might be living in. Um, And you can see what creativity offers people, you know, whenever someone comes in and feels very, um, you know, their stress containers full, they're maybe not able to properly have a conversation or relate to people in the space, but through this kind of like simple creative tasks that they're being guided through, they're able to kind of really regulate themselves um, and connect with people, maybe for the first time that day. People talk about it as like an oasis that it can Mm -hmm. offer you. Um, And I think that if that can be true for people that are experiencing complex struggles, it can be true for people maybe that are experiencing as, you know, valid struggles, but maybe they're not, you know, as extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're not experiencing an illness or a diagnosable thing, but they're just kind of dealing with high levels of stress in their work. Creativity can be that oasis for everyone. So long as we can forget about the product, so long as we're not thinking, what am I making at the end of this? Um, who was it? There was a an actor that said about there's a reason why um, the football coach stays in a box on the field. You know, you have a little box where the coach has to stay. That he's not running after the players during a game and kind of giving them notes and critiquing them. And that's often what we do. You know, expect within hospitality we do that um, during a service and also within creativity. You know, whenever we're in the process, we're critiquing it as we go. Um, so I think so long as people can set aside that kind of critical mind um, and just kind of get lost in the process, it can be so, so beneficial. Um, but yeah, it's just about the breaking down those initial barriers first. Well, David, thank you so much for talking to us. That's so insightful. I'm just going to ask you some quick fire questions. Cool. What is your favorite sauce? Tomato sauce. <laughs> um <laughs> okay um what is your favorite view in london oh my favorite view in london is the window of my third house in london that was in walthamstow that i was in during the pandemic little box room lovely window always had like nice sunsets and cranes and things like that so that would be my favorite view if you could eat at one restaurant for the rest of your life what restaurant would you choose that's a great question i i'm really not sure i'm gonna say i this i'm gonna say i would eat at an otolenghi restaurant just because i i absolutely love the food that they do there so yeah i would choose an otolenghi it does also like hit a bunch of different meals like you can do good breakfast, good lunch, good dinner, and quite different. Like there's a lot of variety. Yes. There's bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually think that. Yeah, they offer breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so I'd be kind of sorted mm-hmm. throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I would choose. Yeah, get a meringue on your birthday. Like, no, that's an excellent answer. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite dessert? My favorite dessert is I'm not really a dessert person. My favorite dessert would probably be a cheese board. <laughs> and who is your dream dinner guest? Oh, my dream dinner guest would be either, and this is so played out, either Louis Through, just because interesting guy and quite funny too, or someone from like ancient Egypt or like the medieval times, <laughs> just like a random person, because I feel like how interesting would that conversation be? <laughs> Sorry, it's either... Louis Theroux or a random from ancient Egypt. Yeah. 
That is so fucking. Maybe a pharaoh. Maybe a pharaoh, actually. Also, I don't even. Would it be relatable? Like, would you be able to even understand them? Okay, but I guess in this dream dinner guest scenario, it's like everyone has a little translation thing, like they were at the UN. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. For the language barrier. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But even like in terms of how different our lives would be, like imagine trying to connect yeah. with someone from ancient Egypt, a pharaoh. I can't. <laughs> also, it it reminds me. I forget what that movie is with Brendan Fraser, where he's like underground for a really long time, and then he comes back up, and he like doesn't understand what anything is. I just feel like it would be fascinating if you got them after like one week in modern times, because I feel like if they just popped in for dinner. The whole time they'd just be like staring at the chair trying to figure it out and it wouldn't actually be that interesting yes whereas like if you had them like a week in and they'd sort of like had some questions answered then you could get into like you know brother to brother sort of chat yes i think they would need some kind of like modern day induction course that they would have to go through so that you weren't yeah. just explaining like how a fork works exactly they'd need a bit of an induction and then you could get to the chat um well, that is absolutely the best answer I've ever gotten to that question. So I'm so glad you stopped by. Um, I just want to shout out the fact that David, as well as doing mental health first aid training for us, also runs workshops that are an hour in length about self-care, support, stress, boundaries. Um, if you're interested in those, please reach out to us at Kelly's Cause, hello at kellyscause.com, or pop to the website and all the information's up there. Um, as I'm sure you noticed in the last hour, uh, they're an absolute treasure and we are so lucky to have you on the team. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been great to speak. Beyond the Past is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at kellyscause.